This is Rough Stuff Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to Rough Stuff Podcast number 21. I am Garrett, Rough Stuff CEO. I've got Zach, Rough Stuff President with me. Hey. And Mallory, Rough Stuff Vice President. Hello. And today our guest is Greg Mulkey. What's up, Greg? Well, I'm glad to be in Sacramento and be up here to chew the jaw with you guys, see what you guys got questions for. Yeah, we appreciate you, you bet. coming all this way, man. So we want to formally introduce Greg. Uh, you work for Raceline. 20 years. I went out there in 2000 and started the racing division there. And at that time, all the company did was trailer tires and wheels. And now they sell 24 different countries on a regular basis. How did, wow. you, how did, you, yeah. how did you start get into the racing or what what was the well, we're going to back format. up a few years because i was like 14 years old when i went to my first dirt track race and met a man by the name of lyle marsh who ran marsh racing tires and i just was fascinated by what he was doing being at the racetrack talking to all the racers and i kept bugging him and bugging him to let me do something and he finally handed me some tear-offs little thin lenses that you put on your lens that you tear off one at a time while you were dirt track racing because the dirt was flying in your face. Hmm. And so I sold everyone he had at the race that night, and he just couldn't believe it. So he's like, well, you just start coming back to the races with me. And so I, when I could, through school and all that, it just all progressed to where I actually ended up going to work there through the summers and then full-time in my later years. And so, you know, it's a... Uh, I think we, we pulled into like 1978 or 79 and needed to do something about wheels and tires and the tires coming off the wheels because in dirt track racing, you know, they're always turning left. And so they'd rip the right side tires off the car, off the wheels, and they would crash and burn in front of a whole bunch of cars. And the races would last all night long and cars would get all tore up. And so we had been building tires for years and recapping them with soft rubber long before you've seen Hoosier or McCrary or any of these companies. Back yeah. then, it was only Firestone and Goodyear were the only ones making dirt track tires. And so we did that for years, but we got to where we got the tires so hooked up and the car so hooked up that they'd just rip the tires off all the time. So we had to come up with some type of device from Gorilla Snot Glue to sandpaper to screws to about anything you could think of. And one day they pulled us all in the office and said, all right, you guys have been going to the races. We need to figure something out. So I went and built my first B-lock was taking a regular wheel and where the little safety beat bump is on it, there's a dip in the wheel and I just drill holes and welded nuts. And I did about every six inches around that wheel. And then I'd run a bolt with silicone down in behind the beat of the tire and the tire couldn't come off. The problem with my design was is the bolts were too far apart and it would get mud and dirt inside there and it would cause it to leak air. Can I ask what year that was? No, oh, this is this is in 78 and 79. Okay. You know, I'm just out of high school. And so uh, one of the guys there, his name was Jensen. He uh, He's the one that came up with what we see today and that we all recognize as a B-lock on external B-lock now. Yeah. I mean, even back then they were making internal B-locks. Hutchinson, you know, for the military was building two-piece wheels with sleeves that would push against yeah. the inside bead and smash it against the outside bead as they bolted everything together. The split rims, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. They were two-piece wheels. And so that was really the first bead lock that was really out there was built by Hutchison for the military. And it was built on a 16.5 wheel, which is different than what wheels we all use because everything we use has a five-degree angle, which is a DOT angle for most wheels. And a 16.5 
was built a long time ago for the military to handle weight. And so it has a 15 degree angle, which is like the slide and the kids slide in the backyard. And so they didn't require bead locks because they ran so much internal air pressure. Mm. Yet they would have a problem. They'd have a flat and the tire would keep the vehicle from moving forward. So then Hutchison built their two piece with the internal bead lock. And then of course us racers, we tried to figure out how to keep the tires on the wheels. So we built the first bead locks and I think the, First real big race we ever went to was a USAC race, and I think the guy's name was Sleepy Trip. <laughs> was that his real name? And, and yes, that's what he was. And he was he was bad to the bone in sprint cars back then. <laughs> you know, back then sprint cars didn't have roll cages; they were just open six cylinder. They were called modifieds, and they were really dangerous. Wow! And so, glory days. If yeah. you ever, do, you ever remember Weld Wheel? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Greg Weld, who founded Weld Wheel, he was the first sprint car racer to actually put a roll cage on his car. Mm-hmm. They all told him he was nuts. <laughs> Following year, they, all cars were mandatory roll cage. Wow. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the B-Lock. We put the B-Lock on Sleep's car. We went out and we broke the track record by two and a half seconds. All the racers were complaining. Back then, you could protest. <laughs> so they were all protesting. Well, they literally tore Tripp's car apart. I mean, the motor, the tranny, the rear end, and finally decided that there was nothing illegal there. And as they were all like talking, trying to go, well, how did he beat the record? And they noticed that on the right rear, we had bolts in the wheel, like, you know, a beadlock. They'd yeah. never seen it before. And of course, the head official come up to Lyle and said, oh, I hear you're responsible for this. What is this? He says, well, it's a safety device to keep the tire on the wheel. You didn't want to tell them it made them faster than hell. You just wanted to tell them it kept the wheel and <laughs> yeah. the tire on the wheel. So they, they looked over and they had their little meeting. They come back and said, all right, we're going to disqualify the time. Mm. It's not a certified USAC safety device. Really? Mm. Damn. The following year in the rule book, mandatory right rear B luck. So the door was open. It was crazy. We were selling wheels. I can remember uh, Mickey Thompson Sr. We used to recap his tires for him to race in the desert. He'd send these, these big old tires, and we called them, after we recapped them, we called them humpers because they were just massive. They were massive tires. And he ran those in the desert, and then we started building B-locks for him. So every year before the desert season, we would build a bunch of wheels. And, you know, back then we were building everything with steel and steel, and it didn't conform to the tires, right? So, you know, modifying. And so then we decided to make a cast ring that was shaped to the beat of the tires so that it didn't cut the tires so bad. Mm. And these were sand casted. I don't know if any of you know what sand casting is, and this is giving away my stone age age. <laughs> but in sand casting, we would have a mold that was about the, this one looked like a trash can, full of sand, had a fire built underneath it, and then a lid that closed down that had sand in it, and it had uh, material in it to hold it all together. We would heat this sand up, and right beside it was a big furnace heating up the ingots of aluminum. So we would mix that up, and then we would hand pour each one of these beadlock rings. That's all I would do all day long. <laughs> so you guys are hand pouring these on a fire that you built, well, and you're a, just feeding ingots into this thing. You're feeding, your... yeah. With the ingots were, I think they were five pound ingots, you know, and they put them in this oven, and it would melt it down into the big pouring pan, and you take the pan off and you pour it in the hole oh, that's until cool, it came man. out the other end, and then you knew it was full, and you kind of figured out how much to put in, or how many you could pour, and so we would do that all day long. Well, the problem with that is. In casting, and, and we can talk about that some more, is uh, you could drop it on the floor and it would break. So he couldn't use it racing because as soon as it got hit, it would break. Start and, shattering. Uh, so, 
So then that's where I learned how to heat treat and all that kind of stuff using a powder coat oven. So I would literally hang them up in the oven at night after the guy was done powder coating. And just let it do its thing. And let it do its thing. And it never was, I mean, it's a lot more rocket science than that. If you got into metallurgy, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, we didn't, I didn't, we didn't have the access to all that stuff. We just kind of learned by as we went. So yeah, for the first several years we built them that way. And then it, it took off so good. We actually had a patent pending on a B lock wow. mm. and they, Lyle was never politically correct. It was difficult to let him talk to people. <laughs> he was really smart about reading between the rule lines. And I call that the gray area. Mm-hmm that we all love to operate in because that makes us fast and gives us an advantage. So he, he didn't really push it just right and kind of aggravated everybody. And they ended up turning us down over a snap ring on a 19.5 semi wheel. You ever remember mounting the old snap rings on the wheel that killed everybody graveyard yeah. dead? So that's how we got our patent turned down. And then once they turned yeah. that patent down, the Katie bar the door and, and Lyle did not keep up with the pace. And so some of the guys on the West Coast, it was Jim Gillum and some of them, they all got their lays out and they started machining stuff and they made some nice stuff. So we kind of got behind the eight ball a little bit there. In dirt tracking where we were using steel wheels, we dominated. And then, you know, there's just a big progression of wheels from the steel into the aluminums. And we actually built carbon fiber injection molded wheels. They were plastic really yeah man i've never heard of that one world of outlaw championships fastest harley davidson quarter mile i mean just annihilated everything because it was so lightweight but the advantage of it was because it was formed in a matrix which is like most of the casting stuff nowadays is a lot more tolerance tolerant tight yeah well these wheels because they were injection molded they didn't weigh nothing they turned perfectly straight and true and so you think a wheel speed at 100 miles an hour, that wheel speed, and if it's out of round, you can only imagine how that would shake the car. Much like if you ever much of a drag racer, you would watch some of these top field drag cars just talk about how the deck and car just shook so violently, the tires were, and if you look slow the speed down on the tire and wheel assembly of these drag cars, you can see when they drop the hammer that the tire just twists up in front of the wheel. And until it has enough centrifugal force to send it to heaven and hell, it doesn't hook the car up. Yeah. And if that wadding is so underpowered, if they're so overpowered and not enough air pressure, it just shakes the car so violently they can't see down the quarter mile. Yeah. And so you can imagine a guy in a desert car or in a sprint car, some of these half mile cars, they run 140 miles an hour. And so we dominated it for a long time. The, we were so much lightweight. And then when they crashed the cars, the wheel would collapse and absorb all the energy of the impact. So it didn't destroy these high dollar cars. They hmm. could literally go back to the pits put another tire and wheel on and go back out on the track and compete. I've watched it happen lots of times. Hmm. So it just, it just got so far and the, and everything advanced so fast that we didn't advance fast enough to keep it. We went into mud bog racing and Hmm. we really needed two or three different parts to do different types of racing. And we just weren't there. We're just small company fishing. Yeah. So, you know, and then when the owner sold the company, he got really old and sold the company. It kind of, the guy that bought it was just, just didn't work out. And so because we were buying all our parts from California, from a company that was established long before Raceline or Allied or any of these guys, we were buying parts to build our wheels back there in Arkansas. And so they called me and said, well, look, we've started this wheel company out here. They'd actually bought the old original Norris million and a half square foot wheel facility. 
hmm. that built for Imperials and all the cop cars and all that. Well, they ended up buying this factory, and they wanted me to come out here and start a racing division. So that's what we did. And first, it was steel wheels, and then. When we got out there, I told him, I said, we can't do the dirt track stuff. Just no money to be made at it. We yeah. need to go into off-roading. And that's when, you know, everybody was starting to put 35s on stuff. <laughs> Big tires. <laughs> Huge tires, yeah. <laughs> and go out and get in the woods and have a good time. And so we started doing some of the events. I think some of the first events were called ARCA. And they were involved with Terraflex and Ranch Pratt. And it uh, it was something that I could see was going to grow because everybody had a four-wheel drive. Everybody's getting into it, yeah. Not everybody could go to the races on the weekend, but they could get that four-wheel drive, and they could go out and wheel, and they could take their families and stuff. So I immediately told the company, this is the way we need to go. Yeah. At that time, though, that was when aluminum was coming alive. And Robbie Gordon was the first one that went overseas and built a cast speed lock wheel for the desert. Gotcha. Now, when you guys were doing the dirt track stuff, you were just putting them on the right rear tire or right rear rear on, wheel, right? In, in some classes, like uh, the IMCA class where we dominated, it was right rear. Because you're only doing lefts the whole time. You're only doing lefts. Gotcha. And, and then you're laying Mickey, that right rear down, and you got the front left tire up in the air, and you're just on it. Just bring now, it when home. you get into a sprint car and into late models, because of the speed and because of the tires they were running, they were like dish rag drag race tires. Mm -hmm. You had to have a lot more control of the tire over all four corners of the car because of the way you're running, but you're still hanging left. Yeah. We even ran bead locks on the inside of the left side of the car because as it's scraping and turning left, it's wanting to hang out to the right, through, yeah. pull it off of the inside. So, yeah, that dirt track stuff, um, <laughs> lots of crazy things in dirt track racing over the years when all this stuff got developed. And there were certain organizations that wouldn't allow us to make bead locks. They just wouldn't let them run it. They go, it's too expensive when... Really, the deal was they were selling tires to the racers and they were making so much money on the tires getting destroyed, they didn't want to save the tires. And we're trying to help the racers and build wheels that make it to the end of the race. And I remember um, I was at a NASCAR race in uh, Nebraska, Bill French Jr. And they did not allow B-Logs. And so I had hauled 125 B-Logs up there mm -hmm. to try to convince them to run B-Logs. Damn. And this is a fairly big race, and I already had some aces in the hole with racers that were going to get up there and shoot their mouth off. Hey, we, you know, we want to run B-Logs. And so I got a meeting with Mr. France, and he's like, uh, he didn't know what a B-Log was, so we went through the whole thing. And I told him, I said, tonight, we'll get out here at 3.30 in the morning. And I said, most of these races won't finish with six or seven cars. They're starting with 18 cars. He says, well, why do you say that, Marsh? And I said, well, because they're going to knock the tire off the right rear and you're going to pile the cars up. So he invited me to sit in the grandstands with him that night. So we set up there, and sure enough, first race rolls out. It's like 16, 18 cars. I said, I bet less than 10 finished the race. And I said, I bet we're here till 3.30 in the morning. At 3.30 in the morning, he's like, well, I guess you need to, you have enough B-locks for everybody here. I said, yes, I do. He says, well, how are we going to get this done? I said, well, I already put the word out. <laughs> and he's <laughs> like, okay. He says, well, I'll make an announcement now to everybody that's here, and you better get a bunch of wheels mounted up tomorrow, Mulkey. Wow. I mounted 125 and had called the plant in Arkansas and had another trailer coming up. Damn. And we ran B-Locks that night, and they allowed B-Locks from then on in NASCAR. So that just truly proved the value of it right then and there. To him? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still had IMCA, which was 7,000 cars across the country that would not let us run a beadlock. Still. Wow. 
So what year was that about then? Yeah, you're in the you're in the mid '80s. Gotcha. You're in the mid. I mean, it's we're rocking and rolling with B-locks by then. I mean, it's, I mean, we're even up to building aluminum wheels at that time too for like the late models. That's what got us into the carbon fiber stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, but they, like IMCA, they aggravated us pretty bad because they wouldn't let us run B-locks, and it was seven thousand friggin' cars, and so we go back to the plant, and Lyle's like well, we got to keep the tire on the wheel for these guys. And so he's doing all these different things. And I'm like, man, Lyle, why don't we just stretch the safety bead area out bigger where it fits the tire real tight and make a real sharp edge on the safety bead button. Mm -hmm. He pats me on the back and hauls butt for the lays. And we end up for two days making dies. We go and get a bead roller, like you rolled aluminum. Yeah. Went and got a big old semi steering wheel and put it up on the top, you know, so you could adjust that bead roller down because you had to get down on this metal to roll that in. And we messed it with that, messed it, and finally made a safety bead bump that they couldn't knock the tire off. And I don't care how good a wheel deal you had, you had a Marsh Stage 2 right rear wheel on. I don't care. Yeah, if you're getting care. full comp every I day, don't you're care. still running that marsh rear. Yeah, and then everybody wanted to copy the wheel. Well, them not being really up to speed, they made a lot of stupid stuff and got people hurt because, you, you know, you put 100 PSI in a tire to try to get it to mount. Yeah. Most people have no clue what that is, but PSI is pound per square inch. Well, square inch is like an old-time ice cube that we used to have to fill the ice trays up and put in the freezer. Okay. That's a one square inch. And let's say that has 100 pounds on that. And let's say your tire's 30 inches just because of dirt track. You can't imagine how much of a bomb that is. Yeah. Now you can imagine if we're running a 40 with 35 PSI in it. it you just don't understand the force that that could generate when it blows up. And I've seen it. You know, I've purposely blown stuff up just so... I could tell scary stories. <laughs> Find the limit. <laughs> I've taken like rubber dust. We used to buff the tires and I piled rubber dust on top of a piece of cardboard, put it on top of a plastic wheel because I wanted to know what the plastic wheel would take. Yeah. Our air compressors went up to, I think, 160 PSI. I got me a 150 foot hose. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sitting up there behind the building and I'm holding on that air and I'm watching the gauge and I'm watching the gauge and it gets up there around 100 PSI and I'm like, it's coming just waiting and finally it lets go and i swear it looked like an atom bomb went off it, <laughs> really? took, it took that rubber dust and it blew the bottom of the rubber dust through the top of the rubber dust so fast that it just made that mushroom cloud right in front of all of us <laughs> it just and we got a picture of it i wish i had it but when you see that you think that somebody photo arted that they're going no way you yeah. just can't imagine psi so i want to circle back on a couple things um you got a bit of a twang. Where are you from? Arkansas. Arkansas. Northwest Arkansas. That's where you were born and raised? Born and raised. And it's where much. you also live now, right? I do. I'm operating out of that office, even though that you know our main offices are in L.A. And then you also spend a good amount of your time traveling in a motorhome or I, a van or I've, both? I've kind of done it all. Okay. In, in 44 years, I've slept in the truck and slept in the bed and bought a motor coach and did that and... Now I've limited it back down to what I call Circus One, which is the T350 van with a bunch of display stuff in it. And so that's, you know. A little simpler. What used to, I traveled, you know, I did 28 shows a year, about 25 to 28,000 miles a year. So I traveled. Wow. I did shows in Daytona and I did shows out here. I did shows in Ohio. I did, we, we, Raceline, we've got after it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've seen your big, I don't know if you still have it, your big motor home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Panther Palace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I fixed the I'm, steering on that here, too. Yeah, I remember, remember it was here for a while. Yeah, was exactly a, right. The steering. It's like a rock star tour bus size. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It was. And it came about because I was spending so much time in LA that a daggum apartment out there was costing me 25 grand a year. Mm hmm. And I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, you know, and then, you know, KOH came about, you know, and you really had to have a way to stay out there. And, right. and yeah. as is with a lot of the desert racing and stuff that we were going after and the rock crawling and everything. So, yeah, we bought a motor coach and um, saved me a ton of money over the last 10 years. Yeah. And, and without, gave us access. Yeah. And not skipping any um, elements of luxury, I access. presume. Well, you know, it, it was better in a tent. And yeah. It was better than the back of the truck. So, yeah. It's you should nice. always move forward. You shouldn't move backwards. Right. So, so yeah. um, how do you know Dan? Because Dan is the way we met you. So uh, are we allowed to tell known, this story? Well, I do have a story <laughs> to tell. And Dan's looking at me already shaking his head. But I don't really know how long I've known Dan. We've just, it just we've both been in the industry so long, you know. And then I think the thing that drew me to Dan was one of the very first conversations was that he had a, uh, was a river raft guide on the mm -hmm. Colorado River. And I tell people that, and they look at me like, Dan was on the river? I go, Why is it hard to tell? I don't know. He just, because look, he just kicks back. You don't look like he'd be barking orders at you to get all hands and feet inside the ride. Didn't he just <laughs> row the boat? I think we get more raised eyebrows when, we, we, when people find out that he was a uh, stock a trader stock at trader, E-Trade. Yeah. So I'll tell you a funny story. You can ride him out for a while. So, you know, fishing. Uh, that's my second passion. And so Dan likes to fish. And he always talked about wanting to fish. And one day, I think we were at Vegas Torino. And uh, I was staying at Pahrump with the motorhome. And at Pahrump, you know, they used to have a big desert race at Pahrump every year. So the Herps bought a, a resort that had an RV park and a casino and right in the middle of it, a big lake. Nice. Yeah. So I'd always stay there when I'd come up there because I'd fish it. When I told Dan, i go... And I'm telling him I was up there just kicking butt with a fish. He's like, man, I got a fly rod, and I, I never even took it out of the truck and used it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> come on, let's go. So he follows me up there. We get his fly rod out, get him casting in the grass. Finally, I take him over to a place where I know there's a bunch of fish and catch a few fish and show him. He pulls his fly rod up and he gets the cast and catches one. Yay. He's fighting it in. He's fighting it in. He pulls it up on the bank and this stork flies down and grabs his fish <laughs> <laughs> and takes off flying with it. That's when you pull out your rifle. And, and Dan's hanging onto his fly rod and it's just ripping line off. He's <laughs> <laughs> going and going. I grabbed the line and broke the fish off. So that, that was, uh, since then we've been buddies. And I tell you what, from then to now, the guy can fly fish. Good. I love watching him because he, he's got, he's got it down. And he enjoys the heck out of it, I can tell, because he does it a lot, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so... He's our like, resident fly fish, I, fisherman. That's his main job he, here at Rough Stuff now. Yeah. You know, in all the accomplishments and wheels and everything, those accomplishments like that I cherish most, because now me and Dan will fish till we're both barting dust. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. Greg isn't telling you about his basement in his motor coach with 40 fly rods. <laughs> Do you have about... How many do you think you have? How many do you take General with you and fly rods? Well, right now, there's probably six in my van. Oh, that's not bad. But I probably have 200. Whoa. <laughs> all in your house in Arkansas? Spread all over the country. Oh, my gosh. 
That's a lot. Well, like I say, I travel the whole country and I want to fish and you can't take stuff everywhere. So, right. you know, and I, so I have places that I have places. That, it's like me and shoes. I care. It's like black shoes, brown shoes. There's just a lot of them. So yeah. I get it. You got so, to have different you know, cool. for different days. That's what's so cool about all this industry stuff and the traveling is, um, great people dan's not the only person i've met over the years that i still fish with and uh the off-road industry you know through all this co-rig and this craziness that we've all had to live through the last year um the off-road industry never let down never slowed down i can remember a phone call from the owner at raceline and he was uh complaining that everybody canceled the whale orders greg what are we gonna do and i was like you know the off-road industry ain't going to lay down. And because you have financing from overseas, they're not going to repossess your house. So just order every wheel you can. I'm telling you, we're going to sell wheels. And we have. We had an excellent year last year with B-Lock. The off-road industries came through. I know Rough Stuff had an excellent year. It's it's hard to it's hard to put it all in perspective with all the misery that there is. And then we all did really well. And, you know, we all need to thank our blessings and, and, and do everything we can to help the other guys. And, and it's just been a tough time and a crazy time. And I thank God every day for the off-road industry and the strength and power of the, everybody not to lay down and die over this stuff. Yeah. And they have. I mean, I, out here is a lot crazier than back where I'm from, even though we still had all the mass restrictions. And it was uh, every life, everybody's life will never be the same after this year. We will always have this. This will always be something we tell our kids. It's just something. But we all survived. Yeah. And we're all moving on. And the off-road industry didn't lay down. And uh, Greg is still here to sell wheels. <laughs> Speaking of which, what is your exact official role at Raceline? Everybody and, calls you Raceline guy. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's Mr. Raceline. Oh, goodness. <laughs> no. Uh, I don't know. Do you the have a business card or an email signature? I do. I do. <laughs> It's all the same as it was when I started. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's and cool. it's, uh, I don't know. Um, working at Raceline has been a great thing. And I, 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 there's days that I wish I would have got to California 10 years earlier than I did because mm-hmm. I have so much more access to capabilities and engineers and factories. And, you know, when, when when I first started building the cast wheel, um, I built a 15 inch and I, I didn't want to go overseas and teach China how to do what I was doing. I just didn't want them to know everything. And so I got to working with some Germans that were in Riverside, California that had some German designed low pressure vacuum molding, which is the state of the art stuff nowadays. And so I got to go out there and meet one of them and got along with one of the German engineers and just learned so much. And during that process, we were building a 15 inch and Walker Evans was doing the same thing, but he was building a 17 inch and I missed the boat there a little bit because I felt like I needed to complete the 15 inch before I moved up to the 17. Looking back now, I would have jumped on it immediately. We do stuff like that too. Yeah. You get so involved in, in your project that you kind of lose sight of if it takes a long time well the problem yeah and at raceline i'm kind of a one-man army there because they were trailer wheels and tires yeah so when i show up there with a b-lock and i tell them i'm going off road i (laughs) tell the the owner i said i'm going to take that 30 dollar wheel and i'm going to put a couple rings and you're going to make 100 bucks on it he's like there ain't no way 
six months later, we're rocking and rolling. Uh, unfortunately, we had to downsize the company. We went from a million and a half square foot down to 60,000 because of some internal struggles, and which has changed the whole landscape of things. But like the casting is a little bit different because you don't really have to manufacture that. You just order it up and have it brought in. And so with the Germans and the machine that they had designed, we looked at the whole program and decided that we wanted to get off into cast wheels and start selling to trucks and SUVs and all that type of stuff. So from what we learned with the Germans, when it finally did come time that we had to go overseas because of the price points, it was required that they use these machines. And so the contractor all rode up and we contracted for wheels. And that's why, and, and it's so competitive in the cast wheel business that, and especially in racing, that the details that are really, really fine that you wouldn't even think about, like the PSI, you know, people have no inconception. They read their tire and see what it says, but that's all they really know. So with the castings and breaking them over there, um, the cool thing about the low pressure and the evolution of this casting, like I started out talking about the sand casting, <laughs> building one at a time and pouring it in. Well, when you break those parts apart, it would look like 80 grit sandpaper, just really gritty and yeah, full air. Rough. Yeah. And so with the low pressure, because it's sucking it up with vacuum from the bottom, it actually closes down and gets it to where it's 120 grit sandpaper. And so that gives us so much more strength, gives us the ability to lightweight it down. So the paint, don't, you know, 30% lighter. Uh, I want to know, what would you recommend for air pressure when wheeling? Well, that's just like a wide open question. Like, Do you want a scenario? Well, I mean, like what size vehicle? How heavy? How big a tire? What kind of terrain? And how fast you plan to go? Zach, you pick your poison. <laughs> Let's go for like a... How about the Rubicon Trail? Yeah, let's see. Everybody knows the Rubicon yeah, trail. Yeah, like a Big, JK or yeah. something. Yeah, let's do a Jeep JK. Okay, so uh, I've done the Rubicon 10 times probably since I've been out here. Uh, and I've done it with 28 PSI and I've done it with 14. The difference was I didn't have to put air back in my tires. <laughs> 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 really, you know, it is, like I say, I hate to make fun, but there's a lot of things that you do take just an average JK with 35s and, and a non beadlock wheel, I wouldn't drop below 20. And I think that you get all the traction you're going to get. Everybody thinks that low air pressure is good. Yeah. And what they don't realize is, and I get this asked a lot at the seminars and stuff that I do. I said, well, I, do you have a rock in your yard? Cool. Take that Jeep out to that rock, put 32 PSI in it and have somebody drive that up on that rock. And you watch how that tire responds. All right, what did okay? You got up on the rock. Now back it back off and lower that air pressure down to five PSI and drive it up on that rock. Oh, you had a little trouble getting up on there. Why? Because the tire watered up in front of the wheel. It didn't have enough air support inside to keep the tread out and open. So it's biting on that rock and going up that rock. And so my biggest thing is I tell everybody, I said, look, you know, it's okay to lower the air pressure down there. You know, the the tire companies are going to tell you that you got to air it back up if you lower it below 20 PSI, that you can't be driving around the highway because it makes the sidewall heat up like rubbing your hands together, builds up heat, and that causes the tires to fail. That's like a low air tire is going to fail. And so if they 
keep the air pressure in the mid-20s with everything they run, they get away with about anything they want as long as they're not trying to get the front tires higher than the back tires. When you start trying to get the front tires higher than the back tires, that's where all the details start showing up. And so you have to allocate, and that's why I say the rock trick is so cool because you yourself can figure out what your tire is doing. And you yourself can figure out how much air pressure you run on it. And don't just do it on the front, do it on the back because you got less weight in the back. So you can run a little less air pressure in the back. One of the other big questions they ask me maybe is, well, why would I run a B-lock and not a B-lock? How about that one? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you, I'm sell B-locks for a living, but you don't really need a B-lock most of the time. Unless you're racing. No. Well, it's a progression. You know, it's just like the trails. You have a one trail, a two trail, a five trail, yeah. and then they can just get plumb ridiculous of what they want to call the trails. Widowmaker. <laughs> so you, beginning wheelers are a lot more timid, and so they don't need to, what I always tell them is make you a little modification, and the first thing is your tires. Learn to drive the car before you start adding in a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, when JKs came on the market, that kind of changed everything. Because now you have online ordering about anything you can yeah. think of for a Jeep. <laughs> yeah. Which before, before then you didn't have all this. This growth, when JK's come out, it just blew up in our faces. It, everybody struggled to keep up with the growth. And now with JLs, and now we got the Gladiators, Broncos. Yeah. <laughs> so people can get in over their heads so fast with these aftermarket parts. Yeah. And I mean... We, for the first time through all this cove rig, we decided to actually retail wheels. We set up an online deal because we knew everybody's at home. You know, they're not getting to work, so they're at home, they're studying, they're checking prizes. So we built a website and we started doing it and did it, the guys did a great job. Mm -hmm. And so because of that though, I get asked some of the craziest questions. <laughs> on the phone because nobody else there has been around beadlocks enough. My secretary, Carol, is probably knows more than most people in beadlocks, but because it's such a specialized deal and the company does so many other things that the beadlock and the racing is such a small percentage of the company nowadays. I mean, dis discount tire and Les Schwab's and all that race yeah. line is available pretty much everywhere now. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, the beadlock deal, we don't have as much technical backup, so I do most of it and carol but the questions you get asked by people is is amazing sometimes um funny questions like i mounted my b-lock today but the tire keeps coming off well <laughs> explain to me how you mounted it well i just went down there to the tire shop and i just had to put the tire over the wheel i go did you take the outer ring off <laughs> you know the one that has all the bolts in it <laughs> well no but we was figuring out how to try to get that tire down that groove between those two rings <laughs> So, you know, it's just, yeah, so that's what you get into. People get in and they don't really understand what they're getting into. We tried to educate them as much as you can, but I'm like most people, just like everybody in this room, I bet when you open up the box, you throw the instruction sheet off to the side. Oh, yeah. I, First can, step. I yeah. can do this. <laughs> and so they get in over their head pretty quick. And unfortunately, with tires and wheel assemblies, we're driving down the highway 70 mile an hour with our family in the freaking car. We need to pay attention to these details. And right. when the JK come in, and that's when you really have to start paying attention with bolts beadlocks the weakest point is your bolts it's not the rest of the wheel it's your bolts because if you were to add up the material that you removed that would normally be the rim lip that's hung around the wheel that keeps the tire from coming right on off if you added up that amount of material and then compared that to the amount of material of your bolts you quickly find out you wouldn't make it a third away around that wheel mm. so that's the first thing to put it in perspective for people
Second thing is, is that when you're beadlocked and you're riding up and down the road, if it's not assembled correctly, the ring can oscillate. And when I say like oscillate, and I guess that's just a word for me because I don't have a big vocabulary, but it, basically what it means is the ring is moving between the bullheads because you're going down the road. And as the tire rotates down and hits the road, the load of the vehicle comes on top of the tire. That's where you have your weight. And that's where the oscillation starts. So if you imagine that tire turns 70 miles an hour, it's oscillating a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that's where everybody started having problems. And we, I quickly, we built a spacer because nowadays the daggum tires, the bead thicknesses are so, you can't find one company that makes two different kinds of tires, the same thick beads. So that makes a difference on your bead lock because if the ring isn't solid, it oscillates more. And the more it oscillates, the more it wears your heads or your bolts. So that's a big thing with beadlocks. And that's one of the big things we go through with instruction-wise. And people need to just kind of pay attention that we want complete support on the ring and pay attention to the instructions, please. <laughs> and you can always call us at 1-800-52-WHEEL. <laughs> <laughs> and they do. <laughs> we need to do a commercial for you for uh, that. Um, do you yourself have any racing experience? Well... Uh, you mean like with a driver's suit? Yeah. Yeah, because I've done plenty of crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> but only one time in a driver's suit. Okay. Yeah, uh, in 2012, KOH was really getting big, and they started the stock class. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be a stock class. So 70 grand later, oh my we show up with a Jeep that's got factory bumpers and factory flares and... <laughs> And we go out and race King of the Hammers in the Everman Challenge. And we didn't really go out there to win the race. We just went out there to do a debut for Terraflex's new pre-runner suspension. And But they clocked us at 101 across the back lake bed in a wow. two-door sport JK. So that was the racing experience. And I got out of that car and went inside, took a shower. I'd come back out and turned the PA on and did the volunteer dinner for KOH that night. <laughs> Told everybody I'd never get back in a race car of course. <laughs> Was that the fastest you've ever gone in in, in like oh, a desert no. in a race car? Oh no, 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 no. No? No. No, like I said, I've done a lot of crazy things. Mm. But I, as far as me getting deciding I'm gonna race and, and and make a show of it and that was it. Yeah. It takes so much of your time, mentally, yeah. physically, your pocketbook. Um lucky for me. Through my whole career, I've been so blessed to have got to work with really smart people because I barely made it out of high school. And the one racer that I can remember the most, and we were talking about carbon fiber wheels because we won three consecutive NASCAR short track asphalt championships on carbon fiber wheels. And because that kicked their butt so bad, all the aluminum company kept having wheel failures and NASCAR came back in and said, steel wheels mandatory from now on. So it kind of ended that reign. <laughs> so, you know, it's just a lot of, a lot of stuff going back there. And, uh, it just been, you know, it's been a great deal and we've had a great time. We've got new wheels coming out. You know, we got started into Baja a few years back, something that I never really, really wanted to do because, there's just not enough cars to make money. There's a lot of JKs and JLs just like for you guys. And so, but it is a part of the big picture and it is a really great proving ground. 
It did help us with international sales because they're an international racing That's facility. That's what they're seeing, yeah. And so it's just pieces of the puzzle that we've just gradually put together for the company. And, you know, Raceline is one of the last family-owned, living family-owned businesses that there is in, wheel, in the wheel industry nowadays. So wow. everybody else has been bought up, you know, like Weld and all these guys have long come and gone and, and they're just names. Yeah. They're not actually living entities anymore, I guess. And so Raceline has family members working as, as well as the owner and grandfather. And, and so um, we got the next generation of Higginson's coming up. So uh, Raceline's going to be around a while. Oh, yeah. I love that, man. That's great to hear. What's yeah. the affiliation between Raceline and Allied? Allied is the parent company. When I went to work for them, it was only Allied Wheel. And then I did Allied Racing, and then we got so much exposure over Allied Racing, and then we went into the aluminum wheels that they decided to push, made me me change everything over to Raceline. Gotcha. And so Raceline is just basically the aluminum division of Allied Wheel. Okay. Does Allied own any other companies as well? Well, I'm not sure what the owner all owns. As far as wheel companies, we have... Raceline in LA and then we have three other warehouses and they're fixing to open up two more warehouses. Oh, wow. So, you know, we're at Dallas, Phoenix. Uh, they're looking at one in Salt Lake city. got one in Salem or somewhere up in, in Washington. And I think now they're looking at Atlanta. I know that we have like Jeep beach and all the East coast stuff coming up for me. Uh, I think after this, I end up at one of the NorCal races and then over to Easter Jeep Safari mm. and then all the way back down to Arkansas, load up the circus and head for, Florida to do Jeep Beach and you know back there um, a little bit different than out here the shows out there like that show at Daytona Beach there's 25,000 Jeeps I mean when you pull into the infield of the of Daytona it's just just parking lot of Jeeps you would think they manufactured them there <laughs> although it is the capital mall crawler of the capital down there so that's another thing, you know, you know, when you talk about all these aftermarket things, it just, it amazes me how much money and how much stuff that you can buy for a JK or a JL now compared to yeah. what it was before those vehicles actually got out here. Yeah, yeah. it's a big market for sure. I, I couldn't tell you, I mean, billions of dollars are spent every year. And, you know, wheels number one still. Yeah. So, you know, that's uh, one of the things that kept us above ground. And, you know, back when most of the other wheel companies were kind of taking a pause, I say sitting on their palms. <laughs> You know, the owner got after and ordered wheels. And so yeah. because he did and he paid these bills, we are, our inventories are, are staying, maintaining, and the company's doing well. It's one of the first things that people think of doing. They're like a lift and wheels, whether yeah. you're wheels, skilled or lift. not skilled, whether you're going to mall crawl or yeah. race, you're going to drive your family around. It's just, um, I still think it's affordable. It's affordable if you, you know, save up money. Christmas gift, whatever, it's affordable. That's what Garrett got for Christmas this year, last year. Well, you year. know, the family gets into it. The right. kids get into right. it. You know, next thing you know, you got your, the kid will be up driving the car, oh, standing just, in the seat, yeah. hanging yeah. on the steering wheel in no time. Well, also, if you have teens and things like that, then they want those. We, we have a high school right over here, and Dan was commenting, it's just like Jeeps on Jeep. A lot of, you know, TJs and things like that, right. but it's just a lucrative, everyone wants a Jeep every age. It just cra- I don't know really what flipped the trigger because there was Jeeps for years before that. I mean, all the way back to World right. War II. So yeah. a trend. It's a trend. It just all of a sudden it just yeah. broke loose. And I don't know if it was just the support from the manufacturing side, making it easy for everybody to do mm-hmm. what they wanted to do. Yeah. Cause we were all hungry. 
Yeah. You know, <laughs> right in there, we were all hungry, wanting business. We were all digging. Everybody that's been in this for 10, 15 years, they've been digging. Yeah. And so they've just seen it go bonkers. There are a lot of interesting things that circle back. I mean, I can't go anywhere without not seeing a person in a pair of Vans shoes. Mm-hmm. Everyone, dads wear Vans, kids wear Vans, teens wear Vans. People at my gym wear Vans. Like things just circle back and become so trendy that people just, I need that. I want that. They want to feel collectively people innately want to feel a part of something. And Jeep, the Jeep community is insane. Well, that wanting to be a part of all this, that can be a fault and it can, it can get you. But the Jeep industry, like I say, with the family involved, I mean, I love going to like, uh, you know, the new trail hero event. I don't know. Y'all haven't been over there yet, but I'm telling you that place over there, Sand Hollow is just, so beautiful and so i don't know what the lord was thinking but he was thinking really good that day for us because <laughs> it's just beautiful and safe and yeah. you can do things over there um just great you know moab moab just got a little bit too too public and too many retirements and it's a destination now you know yeah. um well they have a lot bigger shows than us off-roaders yeah. There, that's the biggest problem. That's why I think Sand Hollow. But hey, we're all headed to Easter Jeep here in, in a couple of weeks, and we'll see what's going on up there. Uh, I know Area BFE and Robert's been doing a lot of work out there, and I think they're kind of pushing most of us out that way. I know they gave him a bunch more land to build brand new trails. Hmm. So there's going to be a bunch of renaming. There's going to be some cool stuff going on in Moab too. So, you know, the industry's growing big time. As long as they can keep making JLs and gladiators, it's going to keep yeah. going. We're going to be we're rolling. Outside of covid world how many events typically do you attend a year well 25 to 28 was my average over the last 40 years so you can figure out how many shows i've done yeah last year i did 12 and i think i'm going to try to do 14 or 16 i'm hoping everything really opens up and comes on i think it will yeah i think, I think will. we only have is, a few more months left yeah, of hanging on the problem know? is is that everybody's going to try to swing in on the end of the year and you can only spread yourself so thin right and so it really makes it tough so it's gonna be like a jam pack it's just gonna be year. tough yeah. you I, know what I, mean? I think that way of vacations i think that way with everything everything's just gonna, just gonna be jammed gonna be up tough but i think we're all looking forward to some. we'll all be doing it with a smile on our face is what I hope. Yeah. Instead of looking over our shoulder and wondering we should have a mask on or not. Did, did they just cough? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So How far back was he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get your tape measure. So for you, does your year kind of, do you feel like your year starts in January or do you have a season wait? Because we have a season. Yeah. Um, what, or is it just never ending for you? you know, in the old days, you'd have like from October to. Yeah, that's kind of when we. Speed weeks in Daytona. That would be our first show would be at Speed Weeks in Daytona. Which is when? In October? For 500 uh, February. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Valentine's that, Day. That would be our right. first big show. And yeah. so you kind of were like October, November, December. You're taking your time, taking your family to Disneyland or Dogwood or wherever you're going. Yeah. And then about right after the January 1st, you're, you're starting to get stuff stacked up in inventory and get ready for the big blow that always comes right yeah. in that area. And nowadays... It's just year-round. It does not stop. Do you travel a particular direction and try – I mean, I know the events, you can't control the dates, yeah. but is there any sort of routine, or are you just well, zipping back and forth all the time? There's probably five basic shows that I try to make every year, and yeah. then I add another two on that just because I like them, mm-hmm. or the people or whatever. Then the rest of the time, I'm actually looking for territories where I'm not strong. Mm-hmm. And so I work a lot through four-wheel drive clubs. I'm giving out secrets, hoping my competitors aren't listening. (laughs) (laughs) 
But you'd be amazed what you could get online in one day and just go four-wheel drive club Arkansas. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. You just start cycling through there and you find the biggest one and best president and you just – the game – and I, I didn't get to make a comment about what the racer told me, but I'll, I'll tie that into this. He always told me that owning a race car, you spend every dime you had, every dime your friends had, and before long you wouldn't have no dimes and you wouldn't have no friends. That's owning a race car. It is a little I was bit told that when I was young and yeah. I never forgot that. Mm -hmm. So, and what was the other question? Um, I think I wanted to know if there was like a strategy for you to yeah. travel around or if it's just the Wild West, are you just making circles? Uh, well, like I say the five and then a two, and then I try to pick areas where I'm weak and I go through the four wheel drive clubs and I'll, yeah. I'll kind of get in with them and I'll find out, you know, most four wheel drive clubs have every year they have a raffle mm -hmm. to raise money for their local charities yeah. and stuff. And so that's always a really good way to get involved with the four wheel drive clubs okay. is to donate to that and get involved and then offer discount codes to the, the club yeah. members. And so if there's an area that I don't feel like we're selling wheels in or we're going to put in a new dealer or something. I call it the back door. I just start getting people to call and yeah. start getting things rolling. Because once Plants you get, and once you start getting it rolling, if it's going to work, it's going to work pretty quick. If it ain't going to work, move on. Move on, yeah. Do you travel internationally? No more than I want. have to. Yeah. I've been to China once and I I, sure. I've seen enough. I wasn't sure if you did like um, <laughs> international race events or things I, like that. They do. They've had, there's, a, I'd like to do some of the, some of the, uh, on off-road racing the f what is it, fcc stuff that they do over in britain and stuff or the they um, do the autocross i was thinking like um isn't there king drive. of france or something well uh, there's king of hammers in france yeah. and spain and, and you Portugal. talked about getting into baja racing um have you been to the baja 1000 is that something you're going to do in the future yeah. oh yeah we've yeah, it's on the green flag for the start of the 50th anniversary of the really? baja 1000 when was that, that was a milestone for recently? us well, the 50th was two years ago. Two years, oh, that's yeah. really cool. That's a great so, achievement. And then I got on the plane and flew to La Paz and threw the checkered flag. Nice. So, yeah, that was a cool adventure. It's a milestone for me. And I, yeah. I, I've been blessed in this industry and the years that I've had that I've got to experience some pretty awesome stuff. Totally. I, I wish people could get a sample of some of it because it would just ignite them. I mean, I can't pull in and hear a car start up and smell that gas that I just don't <laughs> Ready to go. Yeah. You need a film crew to follow you around to share your experiences. Yeah. They all tell me that, but uh, <laughs> I, think I'm, I think I'm too old and boring for all that. <laughs> I disagree. I, I, you know, the coolest thing and the thing that I push the hardest for the company and everything is to information. Yeah. I, 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 the biggest thing for me is to try to get people, like you asked the question about air pressure, yeah. and try not to get too in over their heads about all the stuff like I did to you. And I, it's just, no, I, it's just I overwhelming when you start taking in the whole picture in there. And so, uh, you know, the, the information for the people that are getting into it and trying to get them to learn to go slow at it and learn to drive the cars. And then once you get where you're fully comfortable with it, then do yeah. something else. Yeah. Don't think that you got to spend the whole 20 grand on that thing and then go out there and break it the first time because you're inexperienced. I think that does happen yeah. a lot. <laughs> oh, all the time because there's people who have money. And mm -hmm. if you can buy it online and you can bolt it on, I don't think there's too many parts you can't bolt onto a JK. Yeah, and I think JL. that is why it's so lucrative and so popular. And so they get over their head way, 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 way too fast. And so I always yeah. say, hey, slow down. And, you know, I don't care if you think that's a baby trail. Do it and be proud you've done it. And then Good. go back and do the next trail and just mm -hmm. graduate yourself. You'd be surprised what you would learn on an easy trail. Yeah. That would help you on a harder trail later on. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest things I learned, if you're really going to be a trail rider, is memory. 
Don't get lost. No. Remember oh. what the heck is in front of you? Because yeah. if you sit there for five <laughs> oh. minutes, you forgot that rock in front of you and you just brought it up there and bam. Yeah. yeah. It's the hardest thing to learn mm. is to remember what was in front of you. Like the, like the next 10 feet. Yeah. Because yeah. like the, you can only see so close That's to right. you, right? And then once you forget yeah. it, then what are you going to do? Uh-huh. You're, you're strapped in and you're going to get out and look. <laughs> I did that once on the Rubicon where I was, I was on the slabs and I forgot what was in front of me because I was just kind of hanging out it happens start, start going forward and, and just hit a rock and sometimes you just hit the gas and try and go over it but it was right on the diff and i just kept spinning the wheels and wow. yeah i think i didn't i think i just had my lap belt on too so i even like almost hit my face on the on the steering wheel not the face mm. yeah good thing you had a good diff cover but yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah good thing you do build a good job yeah so education is really important to you and you had spoken earlier about seminars those are race line seminars that you do I, I, every chance i get this here any chance anybody invites me to talk about wheels okay. i just want to get in there and help them and, and let them learn why you know you know we never really got into very much of the stuff about you know why a b-lock over a non-b-lock and and you know there's there's so many aspects of it you know but you know the biggest percentage don't need to be locked as long you know i guess the easiest way to explain the difference there would be you know the trail you're riding and of course all those little deals but i always like to take the tires when i buy them or get them and and, and i stand it up and i want to roll it across the floor and i stick my tape measure in and measure outside beat outside beat of that tire and that tells me what the kind of the natural set of that tire is no matter how many times you get it up off the floor and roll across the ground it's going to be about that natural set well let's say that natural set is eight inches and you stick it on a 12 inch wide wheel well when it gets under load or pressured what's it want to do it wants to go back to that natural set so the beads are constantly trying to pull back in put that on a seven inch wide wheel it's trying to push back out to eight inch it ain't never coming off and the nice thing about narrower wheels is that you want to always have a crown in the tire and that's the center of the tire being taller than the outside edges so that when you approach your obstacle or your rock or whatever it is the tread is out and open and as it goes onto the rock that arc is still in the tire even though that tire hadn't got to the rock yet so you know you're always going to have an open tread biting whatever it is you're trying to crawl over and so that's why they low pressure lowest pressure always doesn't always mean right widest wheel you can possibly put on doesn't always mean it's right and so you know that's kind of the difference between that's why i tell a lot of people you know if you run like a a 35 12 50 on a seven seven and a half inch wide wheel you ain't never gonna have a problem then as, as you progress up and you start beating on the vehicles then you the bead lock comes into more of effect because you're trying to push the bead off maybe or you're rock rashing the edge of the wheel so much mm. and so the bead lock ring can be replaced yeah and so once you get up to that level where you're really starting to beat on stuff then you might want to go to the bead lock and start moving in there so you can replace the ring and start getting the tires and front tires above the back tires. Very informative. <laughs> Tell me about your time as an Eagle Scout because Garrett also is an Eagle Scout. Mm. Yeah. Do uh, you guys know each other? Yeah. Is you that guys a, have a good I, handshake or something? Yeah. I can see. Did you guys already know Not that? Not that I want to show you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's secret. That's why it's Weeblos. <laughs> yeah, you know, I did that. You know, I... Uh, <laughs> I won the most ingenious contest. Which is? <laughs> in Weeblows, you have to get badges. You remember going for the badges? I can't remember which one it was, but I just basically went out and got a stick and stuck it through the bottom of a can and tied a, a rope on it and a nut, a bolt. And 
What do oh, they call them in China? Like a toy. Yeah. yeah. And that's what the competition was, was to build something that was done if you were in obscure area and couldn't do nothing. Right. Stick in the can. Oh, the ball in the cup kind of yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Even <laughs> I kept entertained with that thing. <laughs> so, yeah, we have those. That was, that was, you know, in school it was tough for me because I had health problems when I was young. So I got way behind. And back then there wasn't summer school. They yeah. just moved you on. Make up school. You know, by the time they got me in the fifth grade, they realized I couldn't read the chalkboard. Mm. So I was way behind in school. So that was school was a bummer for me. And so when I got a chance to go to the racetrack, I was. And when I <laughs> that night, I'll, I'll never forget that night after I sold every tear off, and he said he didn't have no more. <laughs> <laughs> that I thought I was on top of the world, and I knew that's where I wanted to be from then on. So that's mm. what I did. Now, I got away from it a couple of times because you can't do something forty years and not get burnt out. Yeah. So I took three years off and went and did first mate on a commercial charter boat in the Florida Keys. Oh, and, that is fun. Well, what was your position on the charter boat? I was the first mate. Oh, cool. And we were the number one boat in the fish house wow. for three years down there. And then the government changed the policy on fish pricing. So I went from making really nice money to hardly any money and kind of mm -hmm. took the fun out of it. So I had to go back to racing. So during the three years you were there, you guys were the number one boat. Right. Ah, I had see. the smallest boat. We were only two-man crew, but the captain was a smart son of a gun. I notice a little bit of a competitive streak in you, it sounds like, in everything you do. You like to kind of be the best. Um, effective. Okay. <laughs> Survive. More humble way of saying it. Well, I don't know what the word best really means, but, you know, um, I just always been a person, like I say, with the people that I was lucky enough to be with all my life and learn and work with to pay attention to the details. And the details is, I don't care if it's safety, life, fishing, I don't care what it is. If you just learn to pay attention to details, open up your eyes and look around instead of what just in front of you, you'd be surprised how much more of a effect you'll have on the situation you're in. Right. And so be loud. I like that advice. Be loud. <laughs> well, I'd like to know uh, kind of what new wheels you guys got coming out because I know you guys always got something new. We got the, uh, remember we got some samples back in the day of the double beadlocks for yeah. the side by sides and stuff. Yeah. Anything else new and cool well, coming out? Know, I built a 20 inch version of that in a forging. Really? That custom backspace, and we've been building like the 10 lug axle tech axles. You're making yeah. wheels for Axletex now? Axletex oh. and wheels for the uh, the rockers, the two and a half ton rock wheels. Yeah. And so I've got several sets of wheels out. Um, there's a big buggy in Moab that's running the tin, the Axletech. And then um, the guys over at uh, Money Pit Classifieds with Roxanne, that big mm -hmm. four seat buggy that runs about 80 or 90 mile an hour across the desert. He's been on the rockers, double B lock fours for about a year. It's something that we developed. It was a. Uh, so that was another thing where you were like moving from one thing to another to try to get something done. And for years we worked with a company called Centerline that built heavy duty forgings that we designed from the ground up. And then we were welding locks on them. Mm -hmm. Well, Centerline, unfortunately after 50 years didn't survive the deal and went down four yeah. years ago. So we had to develop something else. So I went to a forging company and I asked them, I said, well, can you not take that ingot? And I don't know if many people know how forging's made, but it's made out of a round ingot that's maybe nine inches tall by eight or nine inches round. And it uh, has a big heavy wheel on top and a big heavy wheel on butter. And they're spinning oppositely. 
and they spin and spin and create friction until that piece of aluminum is so hot it almost glows. And the guy pushes the button and bam, it smashes it down into a plate. Really? And then that plate is what's made into a center or it's moved over to the lathe process and it's split with a lathe and makes the rim shell over the mandrel on the backside and over the front side. And that's how you get a one piece forging. You know, for years, everybody thought you took a big old chunk of aluminum and just wheeled it out. Went to town on it, yeah. Well, you know how much that chunk of aluminum would cost and how would you get that picked up and get it in the lathe and how would you do that very fast? Yeah. Just can't be done. So this is how they did these forgings. Well, when that company went down, I lost my whole forging line. And so what do we do? Well, I still haven't recovered the 17-inch version, but what we did in the 20-inch version is because we took the same forging, but I had them forge, cut a three-inch hole in it, and then forge that out into a big, thick pipe. So now you have a 160-pound pipe, and then they whittle, uh, no, it's a 180-pound pipe, and they whittle 160 pounds of aluminum off of it Damn. to make a rim shell that has the outer B-lock rings all on it. It's all one piece. There's no welding. And then we take the center section and we can make whatever center style we want and put in a custom back space. And so that project's worked. It's kind of an expensive wheel, but for some of these guys, it's building these extremely expensive vehicles. I mean, you don't stick axle techs underneath a $10,000 vehicle. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a big deal. So that's one of the wheels. And then we introduced into Baja this year, our forged lineup in the trophy truck wheels, the Rhino, and put them on the Dolly's car, won the championship in score last year. And so he's been beating the heck out of him, and we we look for him to win again this year. We'll see how score goes with the crazy schedules and everything. And, yeah. Um, but that's a couple of the wheels. And then, you know, the company has expanded with salespeople and sales divisions because of the expansion of these warehouses that we have people who are designing wheels that I can't keep up with it. I would invite anybody to go to racelinewheels.com and play with the auto configurer right yeah. on the very front page. We do play. We did yeah. play when yeah. I got yeah. Garrett his. And that thing is so cool. And, is and very cool. And they have so many different styles of wheels, and it makes it so easy that it just, you know, people get on there and just play around. And that's kind of, they have really expanded their markets and, like, simulated. They expanded. We started a new company within the company. You were asking about divisions. We started a new division called Kansai which is your street tuner type stuff and the tire burners for drifting. Gotcha. Cool. So we've already won several drifting competitions. Oh, I've seen that with a K, right? Yeah. 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 yeah I've seen that on the site. And so that's going real well. And they did forged versions at first. And of course you always start in a forged version and then you try to go into a cast version to make it more affordable for the masses. And so they've done that and developed, I think seven or eight different styles that are going off really well. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, like UTVs. They developed several new UTV wheels this year, too. And so uh, Richard has done a great job at that. And so the company is is oiled up and the gears are rolling and they're doing a pretty good job of it. And they're keeping the inventory. That's the biggest thing right now is just having it on the shelf because, you know, especially with the Internet. And it was this way before COVID. It's a matter of you having inventory because somebody's going to have it if you don't. Yeah. So if you have it, you got to sell. If you don't, you just lost. You need it. Pick seems up, to be a lot of people's pick up the pace. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of guys are without one part to sell a whole suspension. It just, because we have counted on overseas markets so much, we've kind of got it hung out there. And so at any time we could be putting a bind. Yeah. yeah. And so hopefully we come back to America a little bit more. Yeah. So, yeah that's or the Canada goal. or Mexico. I could handle either one of those more than I could overseas. <laughs> Um, I didn't get to ask you earlier when we were talking about your travels, what are and have been some of your most favorite places to go? Um, the Baja 500 
or the Baja 1000, the 50th anniversary was excellent because we had a big rig and we're up on top of everything on the, on the deal. That was pretty awesome. But, you know, I, I, I love the fact that when the OG 13 was headed out to the lake bed, I ran into JT Taylor at the gas station. I'm like, what the heck are you doing down here from Colorado? And he's like, we're going out here. I think we're going to try to have a race at the hammers. And I go, well, who all's out there? And he nests off David Cole and a bunch of people. And I go, I just coming back from another show. Mm-hmm. So I went in and rolled on out there with the truck and the nice. van, got out in the lake bed and here they all are camped in the middle of, of this massive lake bed. <laughs> and they're all standing around there bickering and arguing about who can do this and who can do that. And they're looking at their watches and directly <laughs> the beer cans hit the trash cans and in the rigs and they're gone. Yeah. I get back in the rig and I drive back to LA. Two weeks later, Jeff and Dave call me and they go, Hey, you know what? You guys went in on this? Betcha. And yeah. that was the start of KOH. So that was a pretty good thing. You know, one of my most favorite times out there was the volunteer dinners. Mm-hmm. You know, that one year we probably had every vendor there came over there. I don't know. We gave out a thousand hats and T-shirts to the volunteers. Yeah. It was just, it, you know, those guys come out there and they work their butts off to put that race on. And they couldn't do it without them. And that was the only night that we had a chance that we got the racers were done with their meetings yeah. and we could get everybody together and relax and, and, hang and, out. and we did, we had a great time. They don't do it anymore. I think the schedule just gotten so busy or I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm not out there raising cane about it. I don't know, but <laughs> that was always a great thing there too. And then, you know, you go back to the dirt track days, standing up on the podium with, uh, with, uh, Larry Phillips with three NASCAR championships on plastic wheels. Wow. Was pretty big so those are some of your favorite moments yeah and then then you get into fishing i've got any bigger (laughs) moments than fishing another thing i love to do is uh, we uh, a bunch of us back there are paper punchers with rifles and guns so yeah we like shooting at a thousand yards so you know we all that's you know that's how you keep saying if you if all you do is race you're not gonna make it well yeah burn up yeah so, Sounds like you got your hobbies locked down. Well, you know, I, I deal with racers. It's, it's funny because I've been through several generations of racers within one family. You take the Campbells. Don Campbell and I won track championships in dirt track when Shannon couldn't, wasn't taller than the table we're sitting on. <laughs> so I watched that whole family evolve and Shannon yeah. and them get up and to where the first rock crawling event Shannon was ever at, he was on Allied Wheels and won the competition. Yeah. And so I have other kids that I have watched come up, you know, like Cash LaCroix. I don't know if you've heard that name mentioned yet, but you will. He's the 11-year-old that finished fifth at the backdoor shootout two years ago. Wow. King mm-hmm. Havers. Oh, my gosh. So he's coming on big time. So it's great to see those. And what I tell them all is that, you know, don't let the racing be the only thing that the kid does. Yeah. Because you can burn them out. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And so... You but it's great to... to see him start that young. I mean, you look at some of the McKenzie's and, and mm-hmm. some of those guys, that yeah. they were racing freaking go-karts and stuff when they were knee-high to grasshoppers. Yeah. And look what they do now. And look what their kids are going to do. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. we got a whole new generation coming. It's going to be amazing at what they pull off. And with the cars advancing like they are, like the Ultra 4 cars. Oh, they're getting crazier and crazier, man. Expensive, though, it's is oh, the yeah. problem. I mean, oh, yeah. you're, you're pushing a quarter of a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really know how that, Money never fares good for sports because the big dollar guys kind of push a lot of weight around. They got big mouths and they make the rules. And so all the rest of us have to really pay attention to the gray area. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we get our advantages. 
And it's better to beat them from the gray area than it is from the back pocket. That's for sure. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. In the uh, first week of April this year, I'm going to be doing the 24 hour of lemons race. <laughs> so that's a, I was, I've been reading all the, my, 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 my brother bought the car and built it and whatever What's else. What's the but name of the car? It's the Swamp Turkey. And you can only have, you can only spend so much money on that, it's right? It's $500 yeah. total. So yeah. that means from buying the car and improving it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Minus the obviously funny. safety equipment. And stuff, they used to so. call it the barnyard race at, at uh, JT Taylor's place. You oh, were really? only allowed to spend $500 and they built like little dirt ramps and out there <laughs> through his build. Yeah. It was a big deal for years. Yeah. So, we're <laughs> looking forward to that. Yeah. I am too. I can't wait. That's going to be fun. Yeah. It's going to be a ton of fun. We're working on it this weekend. Finish but, uh, it up. Is that pavement? It's pavement. Yeah. yeah it's okay. at, it's at, we're the one where there's multiple races a year, but the one we're attending this year is going to be at the uh, Sonoma Raceway. Or, oh yeah. yeah. I wonder if Matt's going to be in that Matt Adair. He kind of likes that stuff and had oh, a, yeah. he was running a blazer. Ooh. Road racing a blazer. Hmm. That sounds fun. Yeah, he did. He did good with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sounds aerodynamic. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> um, so we heard you use a Peloton wheel to power your house. Pelton wheel. Yeah. Pelton. 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 What got you into water power? <laughs> I have a creek mm -hmm. that comes out on my property. And when I bought the property, I knew about this property all my life. I grew up out there. And when I got a chance to buy this, I bought it. And um, the house, I don't know if many people have heard of Mother Earth News, but Mother Earth News was a magazine, a radio show that talked about how to build things efficiently with nature. And having that balance. And so as a kid, I listened to this show all the time, along with WLS from Chicago. And I learned a lot about how to use the sun and all that kind of stuff. So the house is built on a degree north and, or east and west so that the sun tracks into the windows during the winter when the leaves are off and heats the house up. Mm -hmm. And during the summer, the leaves are out and the arc of the roof over the house keeps the sun out of the windows. Nice. So it keeps it cool. It's built out of foam blocks with concrete. So it's like an ice chest. Yeah. All right. So then I figure out, well, I want to power it. So um, a Pelton wheel is something that comes from uh, Ireland because they don't have big power plants and stuff like we do, but they have a lot of water. Mm. So they would make these channels off the water and they come with all different kinds of generation systems. I picked the Pelton wheel. At first, I was just going to do a great big water wheel. Yeah. But I was afraid somebody get hurt or teared up. Yeah, like in every movie, that's where someone gets stuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. so when I decided to put everything underground and come up into hoses, and a Pelton wheel is designed for high-pressure water to hit it and spin it. Mm. And the paddles are real close together. Yeah. And so it's like, if I get it up to 4,000 RPM, I only have to get this one up to 1,600 RPM, it'll produce 10K of power. Wow. To run the house. That's fast. Our and, lathes are spinning at like 2,200 RPM <laughs> for reference. Yeah. So. Well, this is, it goes 1,600 and then into a 3-1 box that spins uh, okay. 600, I'm sorry, 600 to 1,800 to spin the generator. Gotcha. So and it has a 3 to 1. All underground. Well, it's not underground. It's a concrete block building that I built down oh, alongside gotcha. the creek so okay. nobody can have access to it right. or not get wiped out by the floods. Yeah. And then down past that is another station set up that has a water pump. That for every 10 gallons that goes through it, it pumps one gallon to a railroad tanker car at the top of the hill. And then that gravity feeds to the house, which takes care of all the gardens, yard, watering, the trees, everything. Wow. Did you do this all on your own or did you? Mother of news. <laughs> oh, well, did you build everything and put it together well, on your own or did you have some help? I mean, I, I, I have friends who help, 
But I mean, I, I bought the generator, I bought the Pelton wheel. I mean, I designed where it goes and all that okay, kind of so stuff. You so, did. yeah, yeah, I buy the pieces and stick it together and hopefully it works. If not, it'll be a cool conversation piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. That's awesome. So I think we want to segue into some new, a new segment. Go yeah, ahead. we got a new segment. Our uh, content creator, Joel, set us up with. This one's called Badass or Broken. Love it. So are we going to let Greg answer first? I think that would be I fair as our guest. So you're going to choose if it's badass or if it's broken. Uh. Oh my gosh. So what is that? It's a Did you design this, Greg? It's a boot on the bottom of a gutter. It's a little further south, Texas. It's a boot gutter. Is that badass or is it broken? I'd say broken. Okay. It's a little podunk. (laughs) I think it's badass. You like it? (laughs) Okay. Oh. So what is that? Uh, It's a motors, yeah, with a awning. An awning. (laughs) (laughs) At Walmart. What do you think? Is it badass? Is or that is it like broken? a hamster cage on the back of it? It's a milk crate. It looks like my. Oh, na- you're right. It is hanging. It's a bird cage, maybe. It looks like my neighbor's rig at home in Arkansas. Do you feel like it's badass or is it broken? Uh, I'd say it's badass just because it's going to sound good when it starts. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> we give this badass tool. Oh, this is how you start every Toyota. So, yeah, screwdriver. Anywhere. Yeah. So it's like a key welded onto the end of a screwdriver. Yeah, we this just, is actually genius. This is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to say genius. Okay, yeah, we got a new so category yeah. for this one. It's truly, I feel like, how you start every Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> Jam a screwdriver. I mean, you start a lot of things with a screwdriver. Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay, Garrett, why don't you describe this? So this is a bicycle with a car steering wheel. Instead of the handlebars. Instead There's of the no handlebars, handlebars. Yeah. Looks like an accident waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah it's looks, a badass or broken? Yeah, it's broken. broken. I feel okay. broken. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> broken. Broken bones. I guess some oh other dollar. Oh. That's badass. Okay, Zach, <laughs> why don't you describe what this is? A four-wheeler. Where, where do I insert? Yeah, we got a, yeah, we got a Plurus Razor. Instead of wheels, we got a bunch of ice. spikes. spikes. Yeah, it looks yeah. like 18-inch spikes. Yeah. It does look like a sea urchin, Dan says. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sea urchin okay. wheels. Sea urchin wheels. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Badass or broken? Badass. Badass. This is a race line development. Right. Badass, yeah, Badass sea urchin. Product. Oh. <laughs> the right-hand drive kit. Oh that goes $1,800. So ingenious. Oh, this is terrifying. <laughs> so this is a normal left-hand drive vehicle. But with the steering wheel on the passenger and the side and the paddles, and they the moved pedals. the pedals. They moved them under the console. And this. what connects the new steering wheel to the old steering wheel is like pulleys and and, uh, <laughs> and push pull rods. And, <laughs> and it's only eighteen hundred dollars. It's a mailman's car. Oh, coming out of Brandon, Florida. There we go. Yeah. Badass or broken? Florida. <sighs> I want to put that in that new category. Ingenious. You like it? Ingenious. It took some thought to do that. That wasn't just like throw together. I think that took a lot of meth to put together, <laughs> honestly. Uh, but uh, he would have sold it for scrap. True. True. Okay. So, lastly, we um, want to encourage you guys to leave us five star reviews on our iTunes podcast store. Only if I you think we're great. If well, we are. But otherwise, if you think don't we're tell great. us. Yeah, no, no one stars. Just kidding. Tell us the truth. So we want to read a review. This one is by N underscore I-Z-N-B-R-T-H. I guess it's N Eisenberg. 
Um, this is a great company with great people, and it's fun getting to know them, even though I live halfway across the country. Keep the episodes coming. Thank you. Right we on. appreciate that. Yeah, that's awesome. cool. So we're going to wrap this up. Thank you, Greg, for coming out to talk with us today and teach us all things beadlock. Uh, and we'll, Can we call you Mr. Beadlock? No. Okay. No. no, I'm just the guy, the wheel guy. Okay. The wheel guy. I'd love to come back again and talk more about wheels anytime. Yeah. You know, you guys request... Mr. Raceline to come back and explain more about wheels and okay. tires. I'd love that, man. Yeah. Because love that. we didn't touch anything today. I know. So. Yeah. Okay. Just had a great time. Appreciate it, guys. Uh, rough stuff's always been a great country. We, we've been working with you guys forever. And like I said, the relationship with Dan and all his crew, you guys do an awesome job. And I do feel like Dan's fishing has improved since he's spent time with you because he no used doubt. to be no fish. And then no now he doubt. catches a few fish. <laughs> So we want to thank you for that too. He probably catches them on the malt burger, right? The special fly that I introduced to him here a few years ago. That what's it called? The the malt burger. Mm, burger. Sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. Greg, Greg has two flies he uses everywhere, and he catches more fish than anybody. It's not fair. <laughs> I use what you're supposed to use somewhere, and I catch nothing, and he'll catch ten fish. Well, life's not so fair. <laughs> Grab it while you can. All right. Yeah. Leave Thanks us a, a lot, review. Guys. Thank you. Leave us a review. And you can use code podcast. Is it podcast? Yeah. Yeah. For yep. 10% off your order anytime. And send us some feedback, any you know future topics or guests you want us to cover. The email is podcast, podcast at specialties.com. Yeah. Hit us yeah. up with questions too. Uh, we definitely like doing the Q&A. So if you have a question about uh, rough stuff, the off-road industry, or anything from Mr. Raceline in particular, let us know. <laughs> you bet, man. Racelinewheels.com. Come to us. Check us Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Check try them out. The, Buy the best wheels. Try the auto the configurer. Simulator. Yeah, yeah. Auto, yeah, auto configurer. Awesome. That's okay. a big word for me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all run race lines and you should too. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks.